Well, this morning we're continuing on, of course, in our series on Judges. And this morning we will be in Judges chapter 7, verse 23, and we're going to go to chapter 8, verse 21. So Judges 7.23 to 8.21. And the title of the sermon this morning is Victory Over Midian. Victory Over Midian. So we're going to be examining this idea of victory. We're going to look at victory from a human perspective. Then, of course, we're going to look at victory from God's perspective, from the biblical perspective. And we're going to see some, we're going to see some differences there. And of course, just a reminder, we are in the time of the judges. Things do not go as they should in the life and the history of Israel. Um, and so that is one of the issues we must grapple with, especially when we're talking about a very uh, beloved hero of the Bible, Gideon. And when we see the flaws in him, and when I pointed out some of the things uh, about Gideon that maybe in some minds run counter to this biblical hero narrative. I just want you to recall that the flaws and the, the warts the, and the, the sins of these men and women that we read about in the Bible give us hope, don't they? Because these are people that are used by God. They're not perfect, just as though we're not perfect. God uses us just like God uses them. So victory, what is victory? When, you, when victory is mentioned or when you experience it, what is it to you? Well, I think that for most of us, it means that we, we won, we, we're winners, we, we prevail, we've overcome something, an opponent, if you will, either an individual or a group or maybe a condition that affects us physically or mentally we, by overcoming we have a sense of victory over whatever is hampering us in our life. And when we think of victory, it just requires, implies conflict. It implies someone or something in opposition to us. It implies that we are in a struggle. So victory we might see as a positive result of a negative situation. But how we respond to it is one of the keys when we talk about human victory. And we're going to see this in this part of the account of Gideon. Now, how does the Bible approach victory? That's something that we need to examine also. Well, in the Old Testament, victory is associated with, with peace and righteousness and salvation the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures talk about the peace of the victor, which is not simply a cessation of hostilities. It's just the struggle's not over. Because even the defeated, those who are not victorious, even they have that. They have the cessation of the hostilities. It's the enjoyment of a total well-being or an enlargement, if you will. Salvation is being brought into something bigger, 
This is the idea that we see in the Old Testament. There's a little bit of a difference that we see from the New Testament definition, but you can see how it leads to our salvation as it, as it unfolds in the New Testament. And then righteousness is the personal quality which guarantees victory. Now these sound like very great and grand things, which they are. And honestly, if we examine them um, in light of who we are, they really are unobtainable. We're not going to be able to bring those things upon ourselves. But all these things are found uniquely at the foot of the cross of Christ. That's where we find them. The supreme victory of God at the cross with Christ as peace, with Christ as salvation, with Christ as righteousness. But then how do we experience victory? What's the experience of victory to God's people? Let's compare that with the secular world. Victors throughout human history are most often tyrannical towards their defeated foe. Think of the success and the victories of the Roman legion against most opponents. When the Roman legions were successful, they captured their enemy and they brought their enemies back to an imperial city and marched them in a procession through the city with the Roman commanders leading the captive victors. And this victory parade ended in the execution of the defeated foe. Somewhat tyrannical. In human history, rare are the magnanimous victors, those who act with charity and mercy towards the defeated. In thinking of an example for this, I find myself, and I've done this with some of the illustrations I've used previously, I turn again and again to the war between the states, for examples. And I thought, well, why do I keep getting drawn back to this? And by way of explanation to you, um, I think it's because it was a time of horrible conflict within our nation, but it also was a time, if you read literature, you read uh, personal accounts, memoirs of people from that time period, people were, compared to us today, to our, our culture today, were very publicly devout in their Christianity. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't, you know, in a corner. It wasn't separated from their life. And so this time in our history brings forth, you know, some really interesting tensions that are reflected also in the Bible. Like at the 10 a.m. hour, Pastor Steve was talking about the conflict the civil war, if you will, between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, we can relate to that in our history. And sometimes just going back, you know, uh, a century or two helps us have some perspective as compared to the things are, that are going on now. So that's just an example why, why does Pastor Ken always talk about the civil war? This isn't a civil war class. This is a sermon. Well, you know, this is how humans play things out. 
At the end of the Civil War, the commanding general of the Army of Northern Virginia, Robert E. Lee, after the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse, realized that the Confederacy was defeated. He sent word to General Grant of the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, that he wished to meet and discuss surrender terms. Hostilities ceased. They met at the McLean home in Appomattox Courthouse. And when the Union troops heard that they were victorious, that the surrender was being discussed, that the war was over, they cheered. And Grant sent orders out to stop the cheering because these are now our brothers who we welcome back into our nation, that we will not exult over their defeat. This is certainly magnanimous. A couple days later, the arrangements had been made for the Confederacy to the troops to march into a certain spot and they were to lay down their arms and surrender their colors to the Union Army. And they marched in, and in the memoirs of, of General Joshua Chamberlain, he was commanding the corps that was standing guard in the roadway as these rebel troops march in. Imagine that, you know, are these men going to surrender, or are we going to, you know, have another bloody battle after surrender has been reached, and are any of us going to suffer and be the last fatality of this horrible conflict? So tensions obviously are high. The Confederates march in, and they're starving. They don't have shoes on. Their, their, their uniforms are in tatters. But Ch Chamberlain looks at them and sees men much like his own, men whom he loved. And he does a surprising thing. He orders the Union troops to salute the surrendering Confederate troops. The Confederate general, Gordon, is shocked by this. Chamberlain says he could see Gordon's taken back, not expecting to be saluted. These are men that realize, when you read their memoirs after the war, the, the Confederate generals full, fully realize that they very well may be hanged by the neck upon surrender. Well, Gordon returns a salute to Chamberlain. The arms are laid down, and the troops, the Confederate troops are sent home with letters of parole. Now, Chamberlain was roundly criticized for doing this, how could, you, how could you salute these men? And he said that he was not saluting the men who rebelled against the Union. He was saluting the fact that they were returning into the Union and that the Confederate battle flag, which they carried, which they were to surrender, dipped in the face of the stars and stripes. And that this was a signal to the Confederates that they were now back in the Union.
President Lincoln, as you know, died, was murdered four days later after this occurred. He had set a course for reconciliation for the nation. It was his desire that these former rebels be returned and welcomed like a prodigal son. That the nation needed to heal. And the only way it would heal would be by uniting again and not rubbing the loss into the face of the southern states. After his death, though, this idea changed. Andrew Johnson, his vice president, becomes president. He's not as strong as Lincoln. He is basically pushed into a severe, what was called reconstruction of the South, which was unfortunate because it did not promote healing. It, it, it created hate and division. And I would argue that it, it laid fertile soil for the horrible racism that was to follow in the years ahead, the Jim Crow laws and things of that nature. It gave rise to the idea of the Southern lost cause, which caused many people to relive the war over and over. I had relatives that lived in the South, um, and I remember being warned by my father as a young boy, not to mention General Sherman to them, because they hated General Sherman and for what he did to their land. Now, this was, you know, 100 years after the Civil War. So these feelings went on. And this, this, this was a matter of how these people were treated, I would argue. So the consequences of victory is really something that must be considered. History's ju- judgment of victor and of victors and victory often varies from the victor's immediate sense of self-righteous vindictiveness. We're going to see this in Gideon's account today. An example, um, again, from human history is how the Allies in World War I treated the defeated Germans at the Treaty of Versailles, which ended the war, which created and perpetuated hate and conflict. And many, many historians would argue laid the groundwork for the continuation of the conflict in what we call the Second World War. So now let's turn to Gideon and Israel in their victory over Midian and its allies. So open your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 7, and I'm going to start off, I'm going to read chapter, or excuse me, verses 23 and 25. Follow along with me. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, and from Asher, and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters, as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Gideon, having achieved his divi- the divinely intended goal 
of defeating Midian and driving them from the country with 300 core troops seems now to have forgotten the point of the Lord God's reduction of his troops. Instead of operating by faith and seeking guidance from God, what do we see here? Gideon relies on human strength and mobilizes these troops of Naphtali, Asher, and all of Manat, the tribe of Manasseh. And from this point on in the narrative of Gideon, the voice of the Lord is not heard. Daniel Bach, in his commentary on Judges, he quotes uh, the Jewish, Jewish scholar L.R. Klein. Klein wrote, The coward, referring to Gideon, the coward has become confident. He directs far-flung mopping-up operations which are effectively carried out. But the voice of the Lord is stilled, not to be heard for the balance of Gideon's narrative. And the spirit of the Lord, which brought the courage to fight a far greater military force, seems to slip from Gideon's shoulders in the process. Now Klein, by calling Gideon a coward, is referring to that time period between the angel of the Lord coming to Gideon and Gideon surrounding, with his 300 men surrounding the Midianite encampment. Recall as we went over that, the, the um, lack of confidence that Gideon had uh, in, him, in himself. I don't know if I'd go as far as Klein and call him a coward, that's pretty harsh, but lack of confidence uh, at the very least. So the men, the Israelites who answer this call, for the most part, are for the same, from the same tribes as had already responded to the first call, <clears throat> Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh. And the rapidity with which they respond to the call suggests that those whom Gideon had earlier dismissed from service, the 22,000 men, who self-identified as, as being fearful and didn't want to fight, who were sent home, and the 9,700 men that, were, that kneeled to drink the water and were sent home, that these, these men might have been still close by at, at this time so they, because they got there so quickly. And so messengers were sent to call up fighters from, from uh, the tribe of Ephraim as well. And... While all of them, all these tribes participate in the general pursuit of the enemy, the Ephraimites are ordered to seize the river fords of, the, of Jordan to prevent the Midianites from crossing the Jordan. The Midianites cross the Jordan, they effectively, for the most part, out of Israelite territory, although there's the Transjordan tribes, but they're kind of exposed. The, the Midianites are back in their, in their home country, for the most part. They've, they've gotten out of the cauldron, so to speak. <clears throat> and these fords at the river are seized, as Gideon had ordered. Not in time to prevent some of the Midianites from escaping, some still do. And control of the Jordan River is seized by the Israelites as far as Beth Barah. <clears throat> we see a change in Gideon now. His insecurity is gone. He is now a mighty man of valor, just as the angel of the Lord referred to him as when he was threshing wheat at the wine press. Gideon's strategy now is to block and trap the Midianites at the Jordan River. 
And the Ephraimites responded to that challenge, seized the Jordan crossings, and captured two of the Midianite commanders, Oreb, which means raven, and Zeb, which means wolf. The Ephraimites' contribution to the victory over Midian was memorialized in the new names given to the geographical sites where they killed these commanders. Um, Even when we read our text, it sounds as though that was the name of the place, you know, when they captured him. No, the places like the Rock of Oreb and the winepress of Zeb were named thusly after these commanders were captured and, and executed. So the Ephraimites, with the heads of the two Midianite commanders in their possession, crossed the Jordan to join Gideon in pursuit of the rest of the Midianite forces. They catch up with them and they present their trophies, the heads of Raven and Wolf, to Gideon. Now here's a question for us to ponder. There's many questions we could ponder in this account, but here's an important one. Should have Gideon and the Israelites pursued the Midianite forces after the Lord caused their route and flight from the Midianite encampment? Was this proper for them to do? Well, as we see, and as, as, as Klein had pointed out, there's no word from the Lord on this. It appears that Gideon is functioning on his own as a mighty man of valor. The tactics of the Israelites now have shifted from being observers of Yahweh's defeat to active fighting in preventing the enemy from escaping. Gideon does what many military commanders through the ages have been criticized for not doing. From a completely secular, strategic point of view, what Gideon did was textbook. But is he doing what the Lord commanded? Was this what the Lord had decreed him to do? See, oftentimes after a battle is won and the enemy has left the field, commanders, as well as soldiers in the rank who have taken the field, will breathe a sigh of relief that they have been victorious. And they stop and they rest instead of pursuing the enemy and finishing them off. Again, I'm going to take an example from the war between the states. The Battle of Gettysburg, three days battle in July 1863. Union General George Meade's troops meet Robert E. Lee's troops again in Pennsylvania. The, the, the southern confederacy for the very first time had invaded the north in force to try and stop the war to force the Norse hand into peace negotiations because the South was staggering in its loss of material and men. They could not fight much longer. So this was the decision they made. Well, they join in battle, and the Union is victorious. Meade does a marvelous job. Lee retreats from the battlefield with all of his troops. They're heading back south back into the Confederate states. They come to the Potomac River. It's it's raining. It's a heavy, heavy rain. The river's swollen. The Confederate troops cannot get across. Lee's stuck at the river. He's blocked. Meade doesn't pursue him. 
He does not do what Gideon did. He should have done what Gideon did. He would have ended the war effectively at that point. The South would have, would have had to surrender. They could not have fought on if they had lost the Army of Northern Virginia. But Meade sees this great victory. Of course, both armies suffered horribly on the field of battle for three days. They both suffered uh, immense casualties, the bloodiest conflict, bloodiest battle ever fought on American soil. But Meade was roundly criticized for his lack of pursuit. And this was an issue that had plagued the Union since the beginning of the war, that, that, that Lincoln wondered if his generals were afraid to fight the Southern generals because they wouldn't chase after them. They would skedaddle at the, the, at the least provocation. They would hesitate before joining battle. That is until the end when certain great commanders like Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan took over, men who weren't afraid to take the fight to the enemy. But anyway, um, with this criticism, Meade offered to resign. He had heard that President Lincoln was not happy with him, that Lincoln was very upset. So he offers to resign. Lincoln rejects his offer, tells him, no, I'm not letting you go. You've got to finish this. After Lincoln died, a couple years later, the war continued for two, almost two more bloody years because Meade didn't pursue Lee here. A letter is found in Lincoln's death after, excuse me, in his desk after his assassination. It was addressed to General Meade, and Lincoln didn't send it. Lincoln had this habit, which I think is a very good habit, of writing out conflicts that he was dealing with, writing letters, and, but not sending them. And this is an example to us with our emails, you know, not sending an email right away, maybe sitting, but he just stuck this letter in the, the desk. And this is how he closed the letter to me. Again, my dear General Lincoln writes, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, have ended the war. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. Lincoln's thinking of all of the men that are going to continue to die, and it could have been ended. Well, Gideon, Gideon did exactly what Meade didn't do, as I said. Gideon is a textbook commander. You could take Gideon's operations and you could teach them in a, a military uh, tactics and strategy class to commanders. They, they, they're, they're, they're marvelous. But is it what the Lord wanted? Is he a faithful servant of the Lord? That's what, we have to, that's what we have to kind of work through here. So let's read on in Judges. We're in, now in chapter 8, and I'm going to read the first three verses, 1 through 3. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, Gideon, What is this that you've done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. 
Now it turns out, as we go through the account of Gideon, Gideon's had to fight three battles. We have to give him credit. Credit is due to Gideon in some regards. He had to fight a battle with Baal, Baal, the god of the Canaanites in chapter 6. He has to fight with Midian in chapter 7. And sadly, in chapter 8, he has to fight with Israel. Although we've seen in Gideon's account the necessity of weakness in our dependency upon God, which is a strength in Christian life. It's one of those paradoxes. Our weakness and dependency upon God is a strength because God is stronger than any of us, even all of us put together. But fragmentation amongst God's people is a detrimental weakness, not a good weakness. And this fragmentation amongst God's people often results from pride and fear. This brings us to our first point. Point number one is pride within the visible church is a detrimental weakness. Pride within the visible church is a detrimental weakness. The tribe of Ephraim's pride gives rise to anger. And as we see in the first verse of chapter 8, where it says, they accused him fiercely. Who did Gideon think he was initiating hostilities against Midian without consulting the great tribe of Ephraim? Gideon was of the tribe of Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh were the two most important northern tribes. They were rivals. Ephraim really is a prima donna amongst the tribes. After all, it is the tribe of Joshua, which the Ephraimites do not let anyone forget. But how does this affect us, the saints of the Lord in the New Testament time, the saints of the church? Well, we can see it in the epistles in the New Testament that this issue of pride is a problem. As an example, um, 3 John, verse 9, John writes about this man named Diotrephes. He says, Diotrephes, who puts himself first, does not acknowledge our authority, our authority, the apostolic authority of John. John has written to the church previously, um, uh, giving them instructions and teachings. And this man is in opposition. He's actively opposing what John is doing as one chosen by the Lord to lead the early church. Back to Gideon and the Ephraimites. This this confrontation, I should say, is, is dangerous. It's a dangerous moment. The Ephraimites have captured and killed Oreb and Zeb demonstrates their war fighting capability. It would be risky for Gideon to respond to the Ephraimites with force. Gideon uses tact and diplomacy here. He's obviously, he's a very intelligent man. He knows how to respond to situations. What's required here in this situation is not necessarily what will work in this situation. And 
He has more urgent business to attend to. He's focused on catching up to the escaping Midianites. He doesn't want to spend his time arguing or fighting with his fellow Israelites. So he decides on diplomacy. First off, with a rhetorical question, he minimizes his own role compared to theirs. He says to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Basically saying, you guys are, did, did a lot more than me. I really you know, didn't do much of anything. And secondly, he flatters the Ephraimites with, with a proverb. The proverb is, is cast as a rhetorical question, but with an expectation of a positive answer. In the last part of, of verse 2, he says, Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? The vintage of Abiezer, that's the clan to which Gideon belongs, he's saying is insignificant to the gleaning of, of Ephraim. To change the metaphor, to make it more understandable to us who are not in the agricultural um, culture, uh, he's saying the best the, the uh, Abiezerites can produce is less than the scrapes off the Ephraimites' tables. Gideon's soothing words, whether he realizes it or not, take up the motif of the wine press and extend it by means of a double metaphor with the gleanings, which that, that's what's gathered after the harvest. You know, the, the, the good stuff is, is harvested, there's leftovers, you know, things left. Those are the gleanings. And, and the vintage, by vintage he's talking about, that means the, the harvest itself. That would be the, the good grapes that are harvested and turned into wine. Besides this metaphor, we also see a paradox here. Gideon, as I said, says the gleanings are greater than the vintage because to capture and execute key enemy leaders is a more glorious achievement than merely to begin the rout of the enemy in general. That's what he's saying. Whether that's actually the case or not is beside the point. But it, it's a carefully constructed flattery that Gideon is using with the Ephraimites. It's intended to soothe them by massaging their inflated egos. Gideon is a good reader of men. He sees that these are very prideful men that need to have their egos stoked. And it works. And the grape harvest imagery confirms the fundamental connection of the beginning of this chapter which, with which has come before it in chapters 6 and 7. Recall Gideon was called by the angel of the Lord at a wine press to give up threshing wheat to go and basically harvest grapes. Both the vintage and the gleaning of that harvest are now complete. The pride of Ephraim could have very well boiled over into civil war amongst the Israelites. We may have had the conflict that happened centuries later, may have happened earlier without Gideon's wise leadership. See, a, a leader can be wise in a, in a human form of wisdom and perhaps not be in accord with the will of the Lord in the sense that maybe going against how God has directed him, although 
we have this paradox that, that nothing is outside of God's control. But human wisdom may be in violation of God's written word, God's spoken word to us. That's, that's, the, that's the paradox here. <clears throat> so in our New Testament church context, there are proper grounds for disagreement and perhaps even a parting of the ways. We don't sacrifice everything for the sake of unity. That, that, that would be wrong. But it should never be a case of our human pride which disrupts our peace and unity that we have in Christ. In other words, we should not seek our own glory or magnify our own importance. Our goal should be that like what John the Baptist expressed to his disciples, that Christ must increase, and as a result, he and we should decrease as we increase Christ. Going on in Judges, verses 4 through 9 in chapter 8. And Gideon came to the Jordan crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkot, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkot said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the, throne, with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkot had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Our second point that we come to now is fear within the visible church is a detrimental weakness. Fear within the visible church is a detrimental weakness. Not the righteous holy fear of the Lord that we, that we are to have, but sinful fear of man in, in circumstances. So we see with Sukkot and Pinuel's resistance to Gideon as deliver, deliverer was more passive than, than active, generated by fear rather than pride. Gideon asked them for food for his troops. The reply basically meant, not on your life. If you aren't victorious, we will pay with our lives for helping you. And since these towns were east of the Jordan River, they were directly exposed to Midianite attack. So was this prudence on their part? Was it good judgment that dictated their opposition to Gideon? You'd imagine them discussing this. It's like, hey, we're stuck out here. The Midianites can hit us at any time. If we help this guy and he doesn't wipe them out, they're going to come back and get us. Prudence, good judgment, or was it faithlessness on their part? Even though the Lord had granted Gideon such a victory that, un that unmistakably marked him as anointed by the Lord as deliverer of Israel, Sukkot 
and Peniel feared the men of Midian more than the Lord God. And Israel proves time and time again in its history to be its own worst enemy. But the visible church over the ages and even into our present day, and I would argue most likely until the Lord returns, should not feel prideful over the fact that we do better than than ancient Israel. We have the same issues that they did. At the first sign of danger, some have fled the church over the course of the church ages. Some have denounced the saints of God to gain their own safety. Some have even renounced our Lord because they held their own lives so dear. This is an ongoing danger. And we need to sincerely pray that when a time of testing comes, that the Lord grant us to be faithful to him. Don't worry about it now. Like, I, 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 you know, if, if I'm threatened, I don't, know, I don't know if I could stand. The Lord is faithful to us. He will give us the strength to stand as he will have us stand. Sometimes the people of God are a great disappointment. We have to be honest about that. But we mustn't allow God's people to disillusion us. At least be prepared for it. That is a very real possibility. If you haven't experienced it yet, most certainly you will at some point. But we must watch out that it is not our passion for status or our pursuit of security that disturbs the unity and saps the energy of the church. We have no control over our brothers and sisters, although we can encourage them and we can, we can counsel them with the word from the Lord. We can pray for them. But let's focus on ourselves and make sure that we are not the problem that is causing the disruption. Verses 10 through 12 in chapter 8 of Judges tell us, Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of of all the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbaha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he threw all their army into a panic. Gideon pursued these two kings and their army approximately 81 miles. That's really amazing. They're not mounted troops, the Israelites. They're they're foot soldiers, they're infantry. 81 miles of running after these guys. And their 15,000 men still vastly outnumber Gideon's 300, but they're only a remnant compared to the 120,000 men they've lost. Ironically, their fallen Men, the fallen Midianites are referred to as sword-bearing men. Sword-bearing men. It's interesting, since the decimation of this invading force 
began when Yahweh made them turn their swords against one another. But now Gideon again has the advantage of surprise. Ziba and Zalmunna think they're safely home, but they're mistaken. Gideon attacks with the same basic result, flight, pursuit, and capture, but with two significant differences here. There is no reference to Yahweh causing things to turn out as they do. And the two enemy leaders are pursued and captured by Gideon himself. We see this in verse 12. As Klein said, the Lord God is silent in this. Verses 13 through 17. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Hares. The, the translated would mean the pass of the sun. And he captured a young man of Sukkot and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkot, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkot and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkot a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Pinuel and killed the men of the city. His main objective, Gideon's main objective has been achieved. It's now time for him to make good on the threats to Sukkot and Peniel, which he does. This leads us to our third and final point. The Lord's judgment must include his people and begin at his sanctuary. The Lord God's judgment must include his people and begin at his sanctuary. We see this in the book of Ezekiel, with Ezekiel's vision of the Lord summoning executioners to him and giving them orders to kill the idolaters in Jerusalem. Ezekiel 9.6 states, Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, the mark of the faithful. And God orders and begin at my sanctuary. The Lord's sanctuary had become a den of iniquity. It had become a place of idolatry. And that was to be cleansed. Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, speaks of the responsibility of those who are allowed into the Lord's sanctuary. In the New Testament uh, concept that relates to the Lord's sanctuary would be the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those who are allowed in. Jesus says, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The biblical message is clear. One simply does not play at being a Christian. Gregory Mobley is quoted by Barry Webb in his commentary on Judges. And he, he brings forth this marvelous point. Gideon had once threshed wheat, but now Gideon threshes the leaders of Sukkot with thorns and briars. Gideon once tore down 
the shrine of Baal at Ophrah, now tears down the fortification tower of Penuel. Again, we see irony in this account. Those fearful towns wanted to avoid Midian's wrath, but suffer under Gideon's wrath. Since they sided with Israel's enemies, they were treated as Israel's enemies. Judges 8, 18 through 21 is a climatic paragraph, climactic paragraph. And in this, killing is a central motif. There's a reference to killing in every verse. And this is not the killing that happens in the heat of battle, but the cold-blooded payback killing that happens after it. When the man who now has unchallengeable power uses it to settle old scores. Gideon has already killed the men of Peniel. Now he turns his attention to the Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. And he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you were, so were they. Now there are some translations that, that, that translate this as what type were the men whom you killed, rather than what were. Every one of them, says Ziba and Zalmunna, resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. That is, they were full brothers. They just weren't half brothers. And as the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. This is intensely personal, what's going on here. Gideon's brothers had been killed sometime in the, in the, in the past seven years due to the, the Midian's depredations upon Israel. Ziba and Zalmunna, notice, they do not deny this charge. Gideon's relentless pursuit of the Midianites now makes more sense, as well as his reaction to any who refused to help him in his pursuit. This explains why the chase and slaughter did not end with the capture and execution of Oreb and Zeb back at the Jordan. Robert Bowling in the Ale Yanker Bible commentary on Judges says the Ephraimites had brought Gideon the wrong heads. His brother's blood was crying out to him from the ground and he could not rest until he had avenged it. And significantly, this conversation between Gideon and the two kings of Midian signals future problems in Gideon's judgeship. According to the two Midian kings, Gideon's murdered brothers each had the bearing of a royal son. Is there a royalty in Israel at this time? No, there is not. Literally, in the, in the Hebrew, they said they, they were like sons of the king. And Ziba and Zalmunna speak to Gideon as if he were a king. 
Then they taunt him into killing them himself. If someone has a weapon on you, don't taunt them into killing you. (laughs) Because often, most often they do, they will. I know this from experience, so it's just a word to the wise. In the closing of the victory over Midian, we see how much like a pagan king, Gideon now conducts himself. We shall see in what's to come the kingly motive in Gideon's efforts to build power. Power. No man is exempt from the intoxicating influence of power. Anyone is an easy victim to it. Power is a dangerous thing for a mere man to have, especially for a young man or to one upon whom power comes quickly. So in conclusion, recall how in our introduction we spent time examining victory from a human perspective. Now let's turn to the biblical perspective of victory. The primary biblical assertion is that victory belongs to the Lord God. Victory is salvation from the Lord. Victory is the defeat of death. Victory in salvation and over death is only through Jesus Christ, God the Son. This idea is expressed in the phrase in 1 Samuel, the battle is the Lord's. That is, victory belongs exclusively to the Lord. It is his to bestow as he wills. There are three special features of the Lord's victory which enable us to glimpse the true inner character of it. In the first place, sometimes the Lord's victory is the defeat of his people. We see this in Judges. When the people of God, the Israelites, turn to the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the Lord gives them over to multiple external enemies throughout the book of Judges. This is the story. We see it in the book of Isaiah. When God's people refuse to hear and see what the Lord God would have them hear and see, they are turned over to what the Lord calls the looter and the plunderer. And we see in the book of Jeremiah, because God's people have not obeyed his words, the Lord sends for all the tribes of the north and Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire, at the time the most feared empire on the globe. So the Lord's victory is the exercise of holy sovereignty in the course of history. Victory is another way of saying that the government of the world rests in the hands of a holy God who orders all things according to inflexible principles of morality, unlike what we're told today, that there are shades of gray in everything and you live your own truth. That is far afield from the biblical perspective that we should have. Sometimes God's holiness must be asserted against his own people and becomes, as Isaiah called it, his strange deed. Secondly, God's holy government of the world will bring in the great victory of the eschatological day of the Lord, the coming of our Lord Jesus. The power of victory is annexed to the holy rule of the only God. Therefore, the issue of that conflict is not in doubt. 
Just as at creation there was no possibility of opposing the Creator's will, so at the new creation He will speak and it shall be done. Thirdly, we, the people of God, enter into victory by the obedience of faith. We experience victory in God's victory. As the Lord Jesus said, only the Son can set men free. And those who abide, that is, live and dwell continually in his word, know the truth, and the truth does indeed set them free. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the example set forth for us, Father. I ask that the Holy Spirit work in our hearts and in our minds to help us understand how this applies to us and how we can live this out, Lord, that we may bring honor and glory to you. Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters here, Father, and those who are at home, those who are not feeling well. Father, I ask for uh, healing. I ask for um, uh, an improvement in their condition, whether it be physical whether it be mental, even if it be spiritual, Father, we ask for healing upon our, our brothers. And Father, those who do not know our Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, Father, I ask that these words may speak to them and may draw them, uh, may be used to draw them to the cross. Father, bless this day as we continue to worship you and to glorify you, Father, um, Keep us safe as we go home in this inclement weather. Keep us safe as we return at 5 o'clock to worship you again and meet at the Lord's table. Father, bless my brothers and sisters here and listening online. Father, for we know we are your beloved and we give thanks for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.